I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Welcome to Hey, I Want Your Job. And Kim, you and I have similar enough jobs and job histories. Mm-hmm. I'm not as cool as you, like just straight <laughs> up. But in some ways, I kind of have your job. I'm not nearly as good as you at like your your latest job, but like your bigger picture job. Like right. I dabble. I dabble in that yep. area. Yes, you do. So talk to us, Kim. Tell I release the mystery. What is your job title, my dear? Well, I'm an HR leader who owns a consulting business that supports managers and HR teams who have employees dealing with cancer or other health crises. So straight away, I have a question. Did you ever yes. notice that women refer to themselves as leaders and men refer to themselves as executives? I have not noticed that, but that is a very interesting thing. All right, let me let me do that again. Go ahead, ask me what's, what's my job. Take two. Kim, which job title? Um, I'm an HR executive who works with HR teams and managers on showing them how to manage an employee going through cancer or any other type of life crisis. Love it. I do think that is interesting, though, like that women in particular tend to be, and there's, they've done a bunch of data on this. I'm sure you've seen the numbers, but like HR in general right? I think we're what, like 75, 80% of total HR workers are women. But Mm -hmm. then once you get to the director level and above, it's only like 40% are women. Yeah. And you're like, where, what now? (laughs) Where did all the other women go? Where do those men come from? (laughs) It's amazing. It's not even 40. I think it's worse. I think it's like, it goes from like 80 to 20. Like it's stupid. Like, clearly a freaking issue. Um, but what I also, I saw a second one, which I hadn't seen before, which is that number of women who have a C-suite title, minuscule. Interesting. If you take the percentage of CPOs. Right. Or like, I think there are still some CHRs out there somewhere. Right. Somewhere, but right. Like, but somebody's still doing some crazy shit somewhere, Kim, in 2022. <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, that it is, I mean, like single digits percentage that are interesting. women. Yeah. And that the really rest are men. And yeah. I think that there is just something that we're happy to take those titles of director or head of. And like we yeah. push for that last, like, no. You will recognize yeah. that I am, I am here. Well, I will, I will now from here on in call myself an HR executive. I like that. That's exactly what I am. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. All right. Well, now that we've put that to rights, <laughs> let's talk more about what you do because what you do is so, so important. Um, and I love 
that I love that it's, I hate that it's a thing, but I love that you're doing it. If that makes sense. (laughs) No, that makes, that makes sense. That's I, you know, people have a love hate relationship with what I do. So back in 2006, I want to tell a little bit about how I got here. Um, 2006, my six foot six organic athletic husband was diagnosed with stage four large B cell lymphoma and and a very aggressive form and uh, took us totally by surprise. Um, and early on, we really, we realized that, you know, his job was to beat the cancer and my job was to hold the fort down. We also realized early on uh, what an incredible community we had. And some people stepped in and did amazing things for us without being asked, which is a very key part of the conversation we'll have today. And other people didn't, there's another, there's the other half people who stepped away. We lost friends and coworkers kind of backed off. But also there's another group of people who didn't know what to say or what to do and sort of stumbled along. Um, and then about a little less than two years later, the cancer came back and he died at the age of 44. Our kids were 12, nine and seven at the time. So I'm sure as many of your listeners or watchers can imagine, it was a horrific time in our lives. And again, what I noticed was there were people who really knew what to do and just kind of came in and did it. And there were people who didn't know what to do. And there were people who backed off. And after several years after his death, I wanted to write a book that showed people how to show up because the people who showed up for us were instrumental in my like being the semi-sane person that I am. So, you know, I think that people forget that those small little things that they do really, really matter. I wrote the book and then I went back into HR and guess what I found in HR? The same thing. Managers and HR teams didn't know how, you know, they were like, oh, well, you know, if you need anything, let me know, which we'll talk about why that's actually the least helpful thing to say. They would panic. Managers didn't know how to have the incredibly important conversations with their employee dealing with cancer. They didn't know how to lead a team through this difficult time. And then what would happen is a year later, six months, a year, year and a half, Half later, they would have turnover and they would never associate, they don't associate their turnover with what was happening a year before. And, you know, especially now post COVID, we all know that people are searching for, for teams that are caring and compassionate and managers are struggling with that and matching it with productivity and employee engagement. And there actually is an incredible you know, synthesis between them, but managers don't know how to do it. They don't know how to bridge that gap. They don't know how to lead their teams. HR, some HR professionals are incredibly good at it and other HR professionals are just like the rest of us, kind of like, ah. So that's why I went into this business to really support um, managers and HR teams in showing up and how to show up, not just with compassion and care, but also with understanding you still got to meet KPIs. You still got to get those projects finished and how to match, how to match those two together. I identify with so much of what you said. Um, and so much of, I have so many questions about the work that you do. So, um, full disclosure, I went through cancer um, while working mm-hmm. full time, and I um, was adamant that nobody was to know. Right. Um, my line manager at the time made the fascinating choice to not alert HR. Um, Interesting. So he literally was like, "Okay." Right. He took it. He took it literally like nobody and forgot that HR is an important part of that. Yeah. There was, so there was no support. There was no 
anything for me um, through that. And I'm just a naturally, like, believe it or not, I'm a private person. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just like totally like on a podcast said that. But that was, you know, it's like several years ago, Michelle's drama, not today, Michelle's drama. Right, right, and right. It's easier to share drama in retrospect, I find. Oh, 100%. <laughs> so, like, so, you know, I know, and then my dad died of cancer um, a few years ago, and it was very sudden, like your husband. Right. Like, literally, he was in a meeting at work, and a guy went, Jerry, you're, I don't be weird, man, but, like, your eyes look yellow. He was like, right. fucking weird. And then, like, um, he went, got tested, uh, cancer of the gallbladder, <sighs> three months later, dead. So, oh. really fast, out of nowhere. He also chose to tell no one. Right. And so, in his instance, like, in my instance, there was some stuff, and we'll kind of talk about it in a minute, because I think it'll probably dovetail with your work. But in his instance, it was just shock. Like, yeah. everybody was like, like, what, what do you mean what? he's dead? Like, yeah. Yeah. But we have a, a project. Do like, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, his, he would, his contracts didn't end because he died. Like, right. You know, so, um, let's start with that privacy thing. Like what, how do you coach HR team, HR and managers and people in general about, the need to respect people's boundaries and at the same time like how do you how do you coach them around that because i think people feel like i don't want to ask too many questions that if they want to share they'll share right Um, right so how do you deal with that that very intense privacy feel that some people have especially about the c word well first of all i i want to say how sorry i am about your father um and i know that that's a really tough tough death. And, and when it happens quickly, it's, it's, it feels like it's tougher. And I'm also sorry about your own journey. Um, you know, it's, it's, I I know you kind of mentioned it and it was done and I sort of mentioned my husband dying and it's done, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) you know, it's, it, it is a journey and it is, you know, I have a delineation before and after he died. That's my life is split in that, you know, hopefully my life will be split in a little bit more, but in that, in that moment, Um, so I just want to just honor that and say that I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry that that was part of your life journey. Um, so privacy, that's a really good question. There's a couple of things. So one of the things I do is if it's okay with HR, right? Because they can't, HR cannot divulge to me whether a person has cancer if it's not okay with the person. So if it's okay with the person, I like to sit down and have a conversation with them and understand why the privacy because the privacy comes in various different flavors. There's the privacy because, hey, I just don't really want people knowing. There's the privacy of, I don't want people making a fuss. I don't want to hear all the stupid things people say. I don't want to deal with people looking at me and being like, I don't want people to look at me differently. I heard that several times. There's the privacy of, of, um, of like, they're going to, I'm going to get fired if someone tells, if, if I hear, if some, if everyone knows, and I don't want people to see my work and say that I'm not doing good work because of this. So privacy, the reason for privacy varies. 
um, and really understanding why the employee wants to be private is, is an essential part of that piece, because if you don't understand why they want to be private, it's, it's hard to sort of support them. So there are a couple, if, if, if an employee says, look, I really don't want my team to know, and the manager knows, first of all, you have to coach the manager about his legal, he legally cannot tell another team member or somebody else. So what do you say as a manager? You say this person is going through a difficult time and they are going to be taking some time off off and on for the next whatever weeks. That is if you understand what their treatment plan is. Um, and, you know, what we recently did, um, I coached somebody and they were okay with people knowing, but they didn't want to tell them. And they also, we talked about, what do you want people to say? And one of the things she said was, God, please no puppy eyes. Please no, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, the, are you, how are you? Like that kind of thing. She didn't want people asking about what kind of cancer it was. She didn't want people asking about what stage it was. She didn't want people asking about her treatment. So we, so the managers conveyed that information to the team and said, hey, look, they're happy to talk to you, but let's not center it around cancer. That's just not the conversation. So yes, you can talk to her and tell her how sorry you are, but, you know, but just know like, are you going to live? isn't off. It's, it's a rude question anyway, but a lot of people don't know not to say it. So that's an off limits question. So there's so many different ways that you can manage the privacy need. Um, if you're a manager and your employee tells you to keep it private, you really do need to check in with them and just say, hey, I would really like to tell HR so they can give you the support. We might have a program that could be really helpful to you. You know, there is FMLA, like I really, or if you don't want me to tell them, please go in and tell them. Um, but make sure you have that conversation. Um, telling HR is is usually, a, well, it depends on HR, I guess, but a lot of times HR is, is a great resource because they know about FMLA. I live in California, so we have C CFR, CFRA, we call it. Um, but there's also employee assistance programs. There's uh, employee support programs, you know, financial programs that employees have. So employees can tap into so much if they're just willing to tell HR. Um, so even if you feel like you really want to keep it private, I would highly suggest that you uh, at least let HR know. And lastly, I think a lot of people want to keep it private because there's sort of, there's two reasons, um, two more reasons. One is people are worried about being a burden on other people. Because let's be honest, when you have cancer and you're not at your full capacity, you do have to put weight on other people and people are afraid of that. And people are also oftentimes subconsciously afraid of being liked. And what I mean by that is most of us in our head have a running story about what we're not doing well. And we're good at saying, oh yeah, I know I did this well, but most of us are kind of like, yeah, I didn't do that well. I made that mistake. When you have a disease that threatens your life, a lot of people will be like, oh my gosh, I need to pay it forward or I need to tell you how much I love you and care about you. And that's an onslaught sometimes, especially in the beginning, and it can feel really overwhelming. And so I often say sometimes people don't want to tell their friends or family what's going on because they are actually afraid of understanding how valuable they are as a human being to the people. I thought to interrupt, but I would add one more. Yes, that, please. Which is... Um, the halo effect that we see with, especially people who are visibly disabled, but also same thing with cancer. I don't want you to like me because you think I'm dying. Go fuck yourself. Exactly. I didn't like you when I was well, I don't like you when I'm exactly, sick. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. Exactly. Like, to me, that was a big part of it is that right. there was a lot of friction 
in the teams that I worked with. I was like, right. I do not need these people turning around and suddenly acting like we're best friends. We are right. not. Right. I didn't like right. them then. I don't like them now. Yep. Like, exactly. And, and I think that's, I think that's a, that's a great one to add to the list. Absolutely. Because my manager was even like, well, maybe this can be the, I'm like, my personal health issues are not going to be how you bridge the friction gaps in your team. You just need to sack up and figure out yeah. how to manage. Like, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. So, yeah. But I think, I think that is a really great list. I definitely, so for me, it was part of that, but then I, the other one was just the, I didn't want to have the goddamn conversation 8,000 times. Tell me what your symptoms are. What are your this? Well, my uncle's aunt's cousin's brother's sister did this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And then they kissed a chicken and they were better. That'll probably right. happen to you. Well, and that's and that's why the consulting is so important because those are the conversations I have with the employee. And we talk about what do you want people to say to you? What and we teach the team because look, the team is just as in the dark as everybody else. They don't know what to say. They don't know what's okay to talk about. They're they're afraid that they're gonna say something that's gonna upset you or they, they want to share with you that your cousin's best friend's sister's uncle got cured cancer twice, which is what you don't want to hear, but they think you need to hear it. So it's so important that you at least internally or externally have someone who can tell the manager, who can either teach the manager how to, how to, what to say to the team or go in and talk to the team and say, Hey, look, this is an issue. These are the things you can't say. And what I do is I talk about why you can't say them. So it's not just a list of don't, 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 do, 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 do. We are talking about diving a little bit deeper about why we say unhelpful things, even when we are desperate to be helpful. What is the anatomy of saying those unhelpful things? And when people pull apart that anatomy, then they know what not to say for everything because they're like, oh, wait, am I speaking from a place of fear or am I speaking from a place of caring and love? And that makes a huge difference. And we often masquerade. We think we're speaking from a place of caring and love when we're speaking. We're not. We're speaking from a place of fear. So really pulling that apart so people understand what is an okay thing to say and what is an okay, what is not an okay thing to say is so important because had you had me around, we could have talked to the team and been like, okay, like here's a list of things not to say and here's why you shouldn't say them. And then we talked to the team of let's brainstorm some things you can say and let's brainstorm some things you can do. And so people feel empowered and they feel like they're doing good and you get to feel loved and cared for. And that's the end goal of what I do. So I, I think that I, I'm, I'm making faces at you about the idea of the team in question, but I think you're right. I think it, it definitely, in retrospect, I think that I did a disservice to the team by not letting them know. Um, I don't, I still don't like them. I'm still right. glad I don't work there, but mm -hmm. I feel like they did, they wound up doing and saying and, and being things that were extra hurtful that I, if they had had context, they would have been as much as I didn't like them, they aren't evil people, right? right? So they would be mortified to know. So like in my instance, um, I had cancer, the lady parts, mm -hmm. um, that was often messy and embarrassing. And mm -hmm. there was, you know, a lot of bleeding, et cetera, that went with that. And there were constant, like, it was a small office. We so like, oh my God, somebody's in the bathroom again. And I'm like, Yes, yeah. I was for a long time because I am 
I'm literally hemorrhagically bleeding right here yeah. in the office today. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think things like that, you know, in retrospect, I do wish I had had somebody who could have constructively um, helped manage that conversation in a way that didn't make me feel like there was going to be a bunch of performative bullshit. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, look, the bottom line is, you know, as a caregiver, you know, there is some people who do performative bullshit. It, they just do. And you learn to, you know, in retrospect, of course, it's it's easier to just love them from the distance and go, you know, they tried and they wanted to do it. You know, there's there's a there's a chapter in the book I where I have, you know, how to be a human being, not a human doing. And I talk about asking yourself why you want to help, because if you want to help so you can feel really good about yourself, so you can be that martyr, then, then go play with puppies, like go down to the shelter and take out some dogs and have a really good time because they will love you to death and reward you for that. But if you really want to help because you care about this person, or you really want to help because someone was really kind to you in the past and you want to be able, this is an opportunity to pay it forward, then that's the reason to step in. But it's being very clear about your motives of, of, uh, of how, what you want to say and what you want to do um, is really important part of the process. I think that's, I love that. And I also, like, I really the message about knowing what to say resonates with me. So I have always been very dismissive of people who say, I'm sorry for your loss, or I'm sorry for that. And my answer is always, you didn't give me cancer. Right. Or with my dad, you didn't kill him. Right. Um, you know, that sort of thing. And it was actually my reverend a while back who was like, do you realize that that makes you the asshole? Like that somebody, it, they don't know another way to say, mm -hmm. I am sharing in your pain and I am here trying to lift you up. And they are not trying to take ownership for your pain. They're no. just trying to acknowledge it. And so when you dismiss that acknowledgement, you're the asshole. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for your acknowledgement. Yeah. That, also, that's I feel awkward. So. And look, the, look, I think the thing is we don't know how to talk about death or cancer or disease in this country. We're not good at it. We don't have open conversations about it. It makes us uncomfortable. And, you know, people hate to say I'm sorry because it feels like that it's like the least thing it's like it's not going to help anybody. But what you're doing in this whole piece of this is acknowledging the journey right? I'm acknowledging the journey that you took from your father's, hey, I have cancer with a gallbladder to holy shit, he's dead three months later. What are we going to do as a family? Like not time to wrap up anything, right? And so, and so I'm acknowledging your journey as a, as a person with cancer because it's not fun. It's not easy. It's terrifying. And so I'm acknowledging that piece of it. And I think when we, when we approach it that way, I will say, I don't like, I'm sorry for your loss. If like I said, I'm sorry that your dad died. Yeah. Like that is so much more meaningful than, hey, I'm sorry for your loss. I, you know, yeah. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry. Like if you know the name, if you know it's a mom or a sister, say, I'm so sorry your sister died. We are so afraid of the word died that we don't like to use. We'll, we'll skirt around it and we'll say anything we can. Gone, you know, sleeping forever, um, passed away. But if we use the word died, it makes it more like I, your dad died that sucks. That sucks. And so just taking that moment to say that sucks. And it is uncomfortable. I literally just had a moment 
as I was driving here to be on, be a little bit late for our interview, um, there was a fire truck that went by and it was coming up behind me. And we all, you know, where I live in LA, we're all really good at pulling over so the fire truck can get by. And when I was married, I used to think fire trucks, I would, fire trucks scare me because I thought, oh my God, somebody's hurt. And my husband used to say, it's brilliant because it means that they're going to help somebody. And so after he died, I just started thinking about fire trucks and police differently. You know, when the sirens came, I was like, they're going to get, they're going to help. They're going, someone's, someone's going to be, you know, saved, hopefully. I'm driving up, this fire truck comes up behind me. And I say, as they go by, go get them guys, go get them. And I start to cry because it just brings me back to my husband's memory. My husband has been dead for 13 years. So, you know, these moments still, they still resonate in our hearts. And they sneak and, up you and you don't know. Exactly. And you don't know. And sometimes when someone says to me, I'm so sorry your husband died and says it with such meaning and such like just touches my heart, I will cry. And I don't want to cry. I don't want to cry. I don't want to, I don't want I don't want to feel that sadness. Right. But that sadness is exactly what I need to feel so that I can live this life. Right. Because the, because my heart has been dented in a certain way. And that allows me to live kind of a richer, more deeper life because of that. So that's my long version about, you know, why we sometimes are very kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. And then, you know, let's back but away from I that. I think so. You know, one of the things that I've been coaching the managers and, and leaders that I work with a lot on is there's a real tendency, we all have the bad habit of saying, hey, how are you? How's it going? Yeah, fine, great. And like, it's a nothing. It's a nonsense mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And especially in Zoom culture, and most of my clients are fully remote, um, taking the time instead of saying, hey, how's it going? And that like throwaway tone to actually ask the real question and do something to indicate that it's real. So like I, you know, the example that I gave, one of the, one of the tricks that I use a lot is I'll be like, Hey, somebody will inevitably say, Oh, Hey, nice, you know, great. How are you today? And I'll be like, you know what? Today's a shit day. My kids are assholes. It's hot as balls. Right. The dogs won't leave me alone because they're right. bored because they can't go outside. Right. I mean, right. I'm just ready for the weekend. Am I right? Yeah. You're authentic. But what that does is it opens the space absolutely for you to not say fine. Yep. Yep. And that if the person with the power in the room starts. Yep. Yep. The other thing too, you can do, if you just say it the, a different way, you can say, how are you today? How are you this minute? And just pause, right? Just kind of, how are you this minute? So that's one of the key things I say it's in the book, which is say, don't say, how are you? Because it's just way, it's like, you're asking them, basically when you're saying that, you're being really nosy. You're asking them to divulge what is going on in their lives with the chemo, with all their, and you really don't want to know. Like you said, you don't want to know that you've been on the john, you know, putting, you've now gone through your third pad in an hour. Like that's information they don't want to know, but they think they do want to know. But when you really say, hey, how are you today, Michelle? then that person gets a moment to either engage so they have an option mm -hmm. or they can say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not okay, but I'd like not to talk about it. And so you already, you've engaged with that, you engage with that employee that, you know, whoever it is in a way that just shows, Hey, I'm showing, I'm, I'm care. I want to hear I'm open. 
Um, and that's way different than, hey, how are you? Or how are you? Oh, how are you? Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I don't. I'm sure there are people who love the puppy dog eyes. I'm sure there are people who get a lot of comfort. And my sister is very that way, right? Like she wants, she's always wants to be the center of attention and is seen and fawned on by everyone. And I mm -hmm. believe it or not with my, you know, loud voice and purple hair, I do not, I would right. rather like sit in the corner and play with somebody's dog right, <laughs> like, right. in the middle of whatever is happening at the party. And I think that, you know, and that, that doesn't, I'm not trying to demean people who, who are comforted by that. I'm just saying how far removed from my preference it is. But I think that it's really interesting that as we're talking about this, like I am realizing more and more that your work is, and this is probably something you already knew, so, um, but your work is almost equally important for the person going through it as the people surrounding them. Because Absolutely. I wish I had had the words, I'm having a rough day, but I'd rather not talk about it than, you know, I had, when people would have to find out because of whatever, right? right. Um, they would be like, oh my God, but you're going to be okay, right? And yeah. I always said something smart ass because that's me. Right. And I'd be like, I mean, I guess that depends on how you define okay. Yeah. And then if they were like, well, you're not going to like die. I'm like, we're all going to die one day. I'm not right. planning on it today. That's as much as I've got for you. Right. Right. <laughs> so yep. like, and, and that was, you know, it makes them like, it's an asshole thing to say to an asshole question, but it would have been better, I think, and healthier to have other tools and other things that didn't belittle somebody who was trying to be nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the thing is, you know, give people the tools so that they can express in a way that is caring and loving and how the person with cancer or the person affected by cancer takes it is not up to you. Mm. It's not up to you. How they deal with it is not up to you. But the fact is that you know that you can show a certain amount of caring um, and compassion that feels right for you. So one of the things that I was always worried about and that you spoke to a little bit, and I'd love to hear more about how you coach teams on is when somebody is not well, the team feeling like, oh, we can't ask Michelle. She's got the right. right. We can't go to her for that. I'm like, but just, I still run this place. What? Right. Of course you should. Yep. But, so that feeling of we, they have such a heavy load that they're already carrying. We cannot put our petty complaints on them as well. Right, right. What advice do you give to people for dealing with that and knowing like where the boundaries are? Because no, you shouldn't go to them with like, if they're having a rough day, maybe maybe you should learn to, you know, be a grown up and deal with your own shit if you can. But the things that you need their help with, you still need their help with. So how do mm -hmm. you, how do you coach through that? So there are a couple of things. I, I think I, that's going to be my response to everything. There's, so there are a couple of things. Um, the, the first thing is to, first of all, that's usually a normal reaction in the first month or two. And then what happens is the team gets tired and they get fatigued and they come run into something called compassion fatigue. We're six months down the line. They're sick and tired of the fact that they can't come to you and ask you to do these things because you got to do your job. So I think that they're, you know, really kind of understanding that that, that those moments, it, it, those moments, depending on how long the employee has cancer, 
will turn into something that's actually turn into resentment and anger um, on the other side. So the first thing is, again, it's having that conversation between the employee and the manager, having that honest conversation, several honest conversations about work, work capability, workload, ability to do their work, whatever you want to call it, work planning. And it's understanding, first of all, the employee needs to know what their treatment is going to be. They need to know what the side effects are going to be of that treatment. Um, you know, I have not met a single person with cancer who correctly predicted how they were going to handle treatment. Every single employee with cancer I've met has been like, no, no, I think I'll be able to work. Um, this is what I'd like to do. There was one employee who I worked with recently who said, no, I'm going to take off because accordingly, I just think I'm going to get hit too hard and I'm not going to be able to focus. So she took off. Um, but other employees were like, no, no, I think I'll be able to work. It'll be fine. And then three weeks into treatment, they're like, whoa, can't work. But then they've made this commitment to work and they don't want to go to their boss to talk about it. So this is where the manager's management is really important. The manager has to do check-ins with that employee on a regular basis. The manager also needs to manage the expectations of the team. And that means making sure that the team knows that some roles are shifting, some responsibilities will be shifting. You can ask this person about all this stuff. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be offloading all this stuff from this person so that you all can take care of it. So ask those questions. But after that, we need to think of something else. So again, it's, it's, it's a sort of an, it's, it's a combination. My job is a combination of, of, you know, counseling, which is what HR is anyway, um, creativity, and then dealing with hard facts like, you know, productivity concerns and issues. So the sort of what I do is I come in and we have these conversations. We talk to the employee, we talk to the manager. Um, we, you know, so the manager can go to the team because I think the, what the managers forget is that your team is watching you. They are watching every single move you make and they are gonna copy you. And if you lead with compassion, they are going to lead with compassion. If you talk honestly about how tired you are and how stressed you are about this person being off and how hard it is, they will come to you and tell you how stressed and tired they are. You won't hear about it during an exit interview. If you lead with, okay, blinders on, we're going to get this done. They are going to feel all sorts of things, but they are not going to come to you and talk to you about it. They're going to be blinders on, let's get it done. So I think that's an important thing that managers forget. They think that they're only dealing with the employee with cancer, but they are, they are being watched very carefully by the team and how you, how the manager reacts to putting how the manager puts together a work plan, how that employee, because you know that employee's talking to their friends on the team. So that employee comes out of that meeting and says, okay, I just had a really good meeting with Jason or Sherry and she was so great. And this is what we decided. So we're going to put together this work plan. And, and you know, Jason, I put a good word for you so you could take over that project that you want um, is, is really important because that's how you keep a, key, a team cohesive and working together. And that's how you continue, can, you can drive productivity, employee engagement when normally it dips at a time like this. I think that is just so damn smart. <laughs> and I, I think that my um, my favorite part of that is that in addition to, like I'm listening to and I'm like, wow, that's great stuff. But I'm also thinking that it is so applicable to pregnancy. 
which yes. is so much more common, right, than than cancer even in the office. But like so much when a, an employee comes in and says, I'm pregnant, and the team's like, everybody feels like they have to be super excited for them. And they ask all kinds of questions that they may or may not want to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, just because you're happy about your pregnancy does not mean they're happy about theirs. Right. And just because you and all of your girlfriends had great pregnancy experiences does not mean that they are. Um, and I think that then again, with the workflow thing, right, that there's continual moving how good you feel today and how good you feel tomorrow have zero relation by yes. experience after two pregnancies. Exactly. I, you exactly. have more experience being pregnant than I do, Kim. But right. like, but only one more. Right. I will tell you, mine sucked. Mine yeah. was awful. Every, yeah. minute, every single second that I was pregnant until those little bastards came out. Right. Right. And I think the thing too, to remember is sometimes when we have things that are good that happen to us, there's a lot less empathy available because the thinking is, well, you know, sorry, but you, I mean, can't, you, you, you had pregnant. a choice. You didn't have to get pregnant. Um, and I think, you know, it goes for everything. It goes for someone who is suddenly found that their, you know, kid has been hospitalized or has cancer or is addicted to drugs or is in our treatment center. You know, it's, there's so many ways that this is applicable um, to so many situations. Yeah. I, I just, I love, like I said, I love the wisdom of it and I can just see in so, so many ways how useful <laughs> it was. And so one of my big like crosses to bear in terms of like growth that I've had as a, a manager and a human, <laughs> mostly probably human, but also manager is that before I made my own babies, I was very unsupportive of the path of pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, it seems to me that if she, I literally said things, Kim, and yeah, <laughs> I'm trusting not to have too much judgment, but I literally said at one point, if she knows that she's sick every morning for two hours after she wakes up, then it seems to me she should probably get up two hours earlier. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And, you know, I think that that is a great, first of all, thank you for being honest. Um, I just did, I have a coworkers and friends um, live session that I do. And I did one yesterday and I asked the women to talk about things that they were embarrassed about that they had said or thought, you know, prior to having this person that they care about having cancer. And they all admitted to like, you know, I admitted to doing, saying really silly things. That's part of the process. And, you know, that's, you know, this process requires a lot of grace. And whether you're an individual who's dealing with a family member or a friend, or whether you're a manager or HR team, it requires a lot of grace because there's no perfection. Yeah. It's just, it's just trying to get better. And that even now, you know, um, I talked about, don't say, if you need anything, let me know. It is still so hard for me not to say it because I just want to go in and I want to rescue. And that phrase, let me tell you why it's not, it's why it's the least helpful thing to phrase. Say, first of, th- first of all, what is anything? Like anything is too big. I had a toddler when my husband was diagnosed the first time. Did you mean you're going to take your beautiful spot clean single single life BMW with the white interior up to the preschool and pick up my vomiting toddler? 
Or did you really mean that you were just willing to get a, you know, a, a, a gallon of milk or pick up the mail from the post office, right? Like, so anything is too big a word. And even in the moment, I do mean anything. Like if you want me to go to Alaska to pick up you some type of cod, I'll do it in the moment. That's what I mean. But two hours later, I'm like, crap, I got to pay for a flight to Alaska. I don't know where to get cod. Like, you know, so it, so it starts to build up. So the second reason it's not helpful is because you were asking the person who's in crisis, who's like under amazing amounts of stress, something that you, unless you've been in their situation, you don't understand. You're asking them to break apart their day and to find one thing that you might be willing to do. It's impossible. You know, like I said, I was raising three children, working as a freelance writer and trying to take care of my husband. The, I, I couldn't break down my day. I couldn't even figure it out. I will tell you that I did know that I needed pasta after the water was boiling when I went to the cupboard to find out that I was missing pasta. I can tell you that I needed someone to call when my, it was clear that my husband needed to go to the hospital at 2 a.m. And I had to have someone be in the house with the kids while I took him to the hospital. So at that point, I knew what I needed. But most of the time during the day, I had no idea. The third reason it is not helpful is because you are asking, let's just say the person figures out what they need. And they now you're asking them to have the courage to ask you in their extremely vulnerable state to do this one thing for them. And risking one, that you won't be able to do it, or two, you won't be able to do it timely, right? Because if I called someone for pasta, I would have been like, I kind of need it now, not tomorrow, not in two hours, which means I now have to ask you to drop, I'm asking you to drop to drop everything so that you can help me. I'm not gonna do it in my vulnerable state. I'm not gonna miss, I'm not gonna risk that rejection. I'm not gonna put that burden on you. So that's why it's the least helpful thing to say. The most helpful thing to say is to be as specific as possible. So for instance, at work, I know you do the meeting agenda every, every Monday, you gather everyone's input every Monday for our meeting on Wednesday. I would be happy to take that over for you happy to do that for you. And you offer more than once. Because again, the person is in crisis, they are not dealing with a full deck of cards, and they will probably forget that you made the offer. So offer more than once. So those, that's, those are the, those are, that's, that's the sort of big tip that I want everyone to go away with. Never to say, if you need anything, let me know again. That is a fantastic, (laughs) um, yeah, fantastic tip right there. Um, and I, you know, cause I, I struggle with that as well. I, you know, again, busy mom yeah, and everything else. Like, and I think that that was for something for me, that was always something I was really aware of that my right. world stopping because of this emergency doesn't mean that yours did. Right. And I don't want to expect you to act like it. But here's the thing. Here's the other side of it. And again, this is where we always forget is that people really want to help when you, you know, this is how we make connections these days because we don't have the clubs and the things we used to have. We have social media, which really isn't that face-to-face, that, that meaningful connection. People will want to help you because they like you. And I think we forget that. We think, we think, oh my God, it's too much for me to ask. 
No, it's really not. They want to do something. It's their way. The reason I call my book a hundred acts of love is because when people started doing things for us, it was like, here's, here's lasagna. We love you. I'm picking the kids up and not bringing them back to you till Friday at 10 PM. We love you. I'm going to give your husband a ride to the center. We love you. We're going to hire a handyman to take care of that life. We love you. It felt like these little acts of love, every single one of them. And did I know everyone who showed up at our door? <laughs> Funny enough, no, I didn't. They were some of Art's colleagues. They were some of the parents at the school where he was. I did not know everybody, but they all wanted to reach out. It was their way of saying, Art's important to us. We love him. Let us help. And that's, so there's a new way. I want people to think about that when you're the person who's dealing with that, with that tragedy. It's not one more thing for people to do. It is, they are so happy and glad to be able to say, thank you for making me laugh every day with your stupid jokes. Thank you for always being on point and getting me the reports that I need every time. Thank you for being that person who I can complain to. They're waiting for an opportunity to thank you for being you. And unfortunately, and fortunately, your cancer diagnosis is that opportunity. So one of the things you've said a couple of times is that there were some people who didn't wait. They just, they were just in and helping. I would love to be that person. And with the people that I'm closest to, I am. My bestie needs something. I do not, like, she... She jokes all the time that I'll be like, I bought you clothes. And she was right. like, what? I was like, girl, I saw your wardrobe when you did laundry the other day. You were in need. I took care of it. And she's like, right. fucking weird. Okay, great. Yep. Love you. Right? Yep. Like, we have that. She comes to my house and she's like, dishes have, okay. And she doesn't even say anything, right? She just starts unloading the dishwasher or what yep. We are those people. But and I feel in my soul that I don't want to burden somebody because sometimes I, in those moments of crisis, even thinking of what would be the thing that would help feels like too much. Mm, that's a good one. That's yep. So there's an exercise that I do that I have people walk through their day. Just walk through your day. When you get up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? Most people either pee or they look at their phone. Is the cell phone bill paid? Do you have toilet paper in the house? You soap? Did you brush your teeth? Do you have toothpaste? Do you have a clean toothbrush that's switched out every six months, right? Like it's supposed to be. So when you think about that and you take it apart, you can figure that out. The other way to do it is also think about, you know, we have three kids and someone volunteered to do lunches. And I was like, no, because the sandwiches are going to get all soggy. It's not going to work. They're like, Kim, we can put bags of carrots together and, and chips or whatever else. Like we can do that. That won't go soggy. And so, and this came from a mother who had four kids. So she knew that making lunch is first thing in the morning is a pain in the butt. She had a system where she had their kids doing it the night before. So she was the one who suggested it. We all have ways that we do our lives and that we can make these suggestions. So maybe, maybe, maybe they do, maybe they don't say, hey, look, I am, maybe you're on the team and you're an incredible researcher and everyone comes to you to dig in, to find that information that they need. You can offer that service and say, I am an incredible researcher. Would you like me to find either a really good doctor or find out more about the disease you have? Do you want me to find about some alternative meds, alternative methods? I will be your person for that. Right. And that's, you're not, you're not jumping in and inserting yourself, but you're like, I am here for that. That's my skill. 
I am not a cooker. Do not ask me to even pick up dinner. Like I freak out like, oh my God, what goes with chicken? Green beans. Okay. Do they like green beans? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, but if you want me to go grocery shopping for you to find that one item that you really need that no one seems to carry, I'm your girl. I will be at the grocery store at 7 a.m. when that truck gets to live, when that truck delivers, and I will get that thing off that truck for you. I'll make sure that those people in the back get that thing off the truck for you. So it's understanding where your strengths are, and that takes time and energy and the willingness to be a little bit vulnerable. Like, you know, what are you really good at? Are you good at filling a car with gas? Are you good at picking up gift cards? Like a gas gift card is a huge gift, especially right now. When things are so expensive. And if you have an employee who is having to cut back on work, you know, you know, there's not a lot of employees who are like, hey, it's okay. I don't need to work. Most employees need to work and they need that paycheck. And that may be the one thing that's keeping them showing up at work every single day when they would much rather be recovering at home. So if you're, if you're a gift card queen, get the team together, put together a gift card. One group I know, um, one, one company I did, they did Uber gift rides for the person so they could get back and forth to the cancer treatment without worrying about driving and parking and paying for gas. So, and they, they just refill it every month. That's what they do. So there's so many unique ways that you can, unique things you can do, but it takes a little bit of, of taking a step back, thinking about your own life, about something you want, want and then just being free with the offer. They take you up, great. They don't take you up, great. You can still yep. think of something else. Again, fantastic. You're so smart. Like, I think that that's- <laughs> I'm not thing. smart. <laughs> so one of the things I think is amazing about you is like, again, Everybody has been through some version of these experiences. Not all of us come out the other side with the knowledge and skills that you did, mm, right? Like, thank you. And I think that, A, I want to honor and celebrate you for that thank because you. that's, really, that's sweet. really impressive. But I also think that, that, that there is often an assumption that I have lived this and therefore I know it. Mm. And I am here to say I have lived this and I don't know it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I have been the cancer patient. I have been the person whose dad died and I, nope. Yeah. I would absolutely, like, I know that I, I have things that I do to coach teams. I have things that I, I say to help managers, but I am definitely not the expert that you are. Right. And I think that that, I think that's hard for people sometimes to see. How do you, that must be something you encounter all the time, that you you reach out to a prospective client or you talk to a new manager and they're like, Psh, I'm a three-time cancer survivor. I know all about this. I got this. I don't need your help, Kim. Yep. Yep. How so, do you deal with that? Fortunately, it has not happened very often. Okay. Um, and look, there's wisdom in everybody. And if that manager feels like they've Dig got really it, deep, you can find it, <laughs> you know, then, then, then I am not going to come in and be like, no, you don't have it. I ask questions. What kind of cancer does this employee have? Is it the same as yours? Is it as intense as yours? What, you know, I want to know about their history because, you know, if they've had the kind of cancer where they need chemo, where they lose their hair and they had the kind of cancer where they need a surgery and they've had the kind of cancer where they need, you know, Im immunotherapy and they've had the kind of cancer where they need an operation that kind of covers a lot of cancers, you know, a lot of treatments. If they've had the kind of cancer that, you know, they, they come in, there's operation, they're done. 
then maybe they don't know. And usually those people are actually the most humble. They, they struggle with calling themselves cancer survivors because they, you know, it comes in, they have surgery, it's done. And then, and then they're cancer free. And then there's other people they see who are 10 months, 11 months, 12 months, 10 years fighting cancer. Um, if, if you're the guy who's had, you know, if you have endocrine cancer, which is a kind of cancer that lasts, that, that takes a very long time to kill you, um, then I, you may not need my help, but I think it's really making sure that I'm asking the right questions to understand, because I think what happens is, look, I have not had cancer, so I cannot talk to you from the place of what it's like to have cancer. I'm very clear about that. I'm really honest about that every single time I talk to someone with cancer, but I do know what it's like to be a caregiver and cancer. People with cancer have no idea what it's like to be a caregiver. And, and I think that's, that's where that switch comes on. When someone says, I've had cancer. It's like, yeah, but did your, how did your partner handle it? How did, how did your manager handle it? And they're like, oh, right. There's all these little nuances they don't think. I think the thing we forget is that cancer is an entanglement. It is not a one. It's like a, it's an entanglement, or you can picture it as a big old fat rock in a pond. And so it has ripple effects and affects everyone else. When you have the cancer, you're the center. You can't even envision the effects that it has outside of you. And um, that's what I try to impress on people is if you are the person with cancer, then there are lots of things. There are many blind spots you have that you just can't see. I will share this one story. Um, about three years after my husband died, I started calling people and thanking them for the things that they did because one, I didn't remember what they did for us because I was so out of my mind. I had no idea. And I remember going to my in-laws house and just sobbing because for the first time I understood they lost their child. I was a widow. I couldn't, I couldn't comprehend that their loss at that point. I just couldn't. But all of a sudden, I was really able to see, oh, wait, all these people, they lost a coworker. They lost, you know, my, my kids, obviously, it was easy enough to see they lost a dad. But, like, his, his siblings lost a brother, right? It's so, it takes time to understand the ramifications of what you went through that is not just about you. It is about so many other people. It's so much bigger than just you. So my mom my the other day... Um her dad was sick and her dad is ancient because I'm ancient. My mom is ancient. Her, like, her dad is still alive. He's basically Methuselah, right, but right. like the Comanche version thereof. Right, um, right, right. Like too mean to die, I guess. But we had like a moment where we were like, oh, like this is it. This is it. We're all going to go and say bye to granddaddy. Right. And I was helping my mom pack and she was panicked and upset because her dad was dying, et cetera. And she said, Michelle, you just don't understand. My dad's dying. And I just kind of looked at her and I was like, yeah, mom, how the fuck would I understand that? What? <laughs> and that's, and that's, and that's, you know, that's how it is. I mean, I think it's, it's, look, it's the worst. I love this saying. This was from, oh God. There's a man, I think it's David Kessler, who's who's carrying on the work of Elizabeth Kugler, uh, Kugler Ross about this the the levels of death. Um, um, I'm sorry. Can you hold on? This is I'm so sorry. Can you pause it? Hang on. Banana hammock. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, so I think that 
what we forget is, oh, he talked about, he talked about the most, the, he asks audiences all the time, what's the worst death? And people are like kids and spouses and, you know, a close relative. And the worst death is your, is the one you suffered, right? That's that, that is the worst death. So my worst death will always be, hopefully knocking on wood will always be my husband right? The worst cancer, I, the worst kind of cancer is my cancer. And so we get very myopic, which is totally reasonable, explainable, understandable. It's where we need to be when we're in the moment. But to be able to understand that that's where you are in the moment, and that at some point you'll be able to take that step back and look at that from an, outs an outsider point of view, it's really humbling. It's really, really humbling. You get to say, I'm not the only one who is hurting, you know? Right. That that is so profound and so beautiful. And I, I am excited to um, get to work with you uh, going forward and you're amazing. And we are actually over time because you have been incredible. What did I not ask you that I should have asked you? I don't think there's a question. I think I want to say and let everyone hear this. You matter. I think so many times we don't show up for our friends because we talk ourselves into believing that we're not important because we can't fix whatever it is needs to be fixed. You don't have to fix anything. You are the exact right person your friend, coworker, team member needs to be to deliver the right message to them. Um, so I want people so badly to just know how much they matter. Um, it's not the perfect words. It's not about the perfect thing to do. It is about showing up in your authentic self um, and accepting and loving them for where they are in that moment. So I think that's the one last message I want people to know. And of course, it was a beautiful one. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> I appreciate it. And lastly, um, if anyone wants to know five phrases never to say to anyone with cancer, please go to 100 Acts of Love. That's the number 100, 100actsoflove.com backslash what not to say. And you'll download your free phrases never to say to anyone with cancer and what to say instead. In addition, if you are interested in learning more about me and how I can possibly support you, your employees, your friends, uh, your teammates, your, um, your employee with cancer, please check me out at that website and also on LinkedIn. I do, I post every single Wednesday and I also do LinkedIn lives every Thursday. So if you're around at 12 p.m. Pacific time, stop on by the LinkedIn live or if there's a topic that you particularly want to hear, message me and I will be sure to cover it. Thank you. That is I love it. it. No I problem. really appreciate you, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me here. It's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. It was for me as well. Thank you. You've been listening to, Hey, I want your job. For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com. We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Insta for more insider information. Soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job. <laughs>